This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 280 of Literary Treks. We're your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. But, of course, I can't do this show alone. Did I say I'm Dan Gunther? I don't think so, but I think we all know who you are, Dan. (laughs) I'm Dan Gunther, but of course I can't do this show alone. So joining me, as he does every week, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? I'm doing what? Wait, who are you again? I'm I'm Dan Gunther. I I just, okay, I just read this book all about how to do a good podcast because, you know, I figure it's about time that I learned that. (laughs) Well, you need to share it with me. (laughs) (laughs) And it said, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing the show, you should say the name of the show and your name at the top of every episode, because just like we've talked about with the novel writers in Star Trek, any Star Trek novel might be someone's first Star Trek novel. Mm -hmm. Any episode of this show might be someone's first. So you never know. Well, and based on this conversation, it may be their last. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh, well, it had to be said, (laughs) but no, this is a great show. I think so too. I think this is going to be a really fun show. I'm really excited for this one. In the feature, we are covering a comic series we've never covered before, and that's going back to the late 90s and Marvel Comics uh, Star Trek stuff. They had a series called Early Voyages featuring the voyages of Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise, and uh, we're going to be covering the first four issues of that. If uh, you don't know how to get your hands on it there's a couple ways the eagle moss graphic novel collection uh issue number and i had it up but now i don't it's volume nine volume nine of the eagle moss graphic novel collection covers these four issues and if you don't have that and you do happen to have the dvd that uh featured all of the star trek comics up to a certain point yeah there's yeah the dvd rom uh, you'll be able to find those on there as well. Is it a DVD-ROM so, uh, or was CD-ROM? I, I thought it was a CD. It is a DVD-ROM. DVD I thought it was a CD, but it's actually oh, wow. a DVD. Okay. Anyway. I have it, but I just didn't realize that. Yeah, I do too. It's uh, it's a great way to catch up on some of these old comics and relive 
some of our memories because we're old reading those uh, comics from back then as well. Yeah. And if you have the original comics, like print version that you bought in the 90s or found in a comic book store, that's even better. That's true. That's, I mean, that's the best way to consume these for sure, I think. Uh, But before we get to the feature, we do have to do news. And uh, there there seems to be not much news floating around. Um, Let's see. I I did see on Facebook that Una McCormick has recently finished writing her Star Trek Picard novel. Uh, So that's the only little bit of news that I've got. Excited to read that next year. Absolutely. Bruce, have you seen any news floating around that uh, you want to share? Because I came up kind of empty. Yeah, I mean, I saw something a few weeks ago from Dayton Ward on Facebook where I think we know that we've mentioned this before, or he's mentioned it before here on the show the last year or so about his Kirk Fu book uh about how to fight like kirk basically it's a fun book but it's been officially the universe's most deadly martial art i believe yes exactly (laughs) well it's been approved by cbs and he says it now officially is slated for publication on march 3rd of 2020 by insight editions so that's going to be exciting because everybody's gonna be kirk foo fighting Excellent. Well, we'll have to put that on the schedule for sure. Absolutely. Because uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Because I will try these moves. I will try these. I think I might do it at work. I have a few people I have. <laughs> I want to try these on. Yeah. Ooh. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of glad that I don't live in the same place as you because I, I would not want to be on the receiving oh, end. Oh, I of, wouldn't do that you know, to you. One of those Kirk chops no. to the neck or, or something like that. No, I wouldn't do that to you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Well, I guess uh, with such little news, all that we have left is to pop into the Babel conference and uh, take a look at some of your guys' feedback from Literary Treks number 278. Uh, His losses continue to mount. This is the episode that we had John Jackson Miller on to talk about Star Trek Discovery, The Enterprise War, his latest novel. And uh, we got some great comments from you guys. Uh, First up is from David Plummer, who says he's been looking forward to this one since uh, this is a rare occasion where he's read a big new release before it shows up. Um, He had some mixed feelings about a couple of aspects. Uh, Everything on the Enterprise, he thought, was all top notch. Um, But the second story with the robot suited infantry was fine on its own, but he didn't feel that it was really Star Trek for him. Uh, So, you know, it kind of made sense to him that the author has a bit more of a Star Wars background, Uh, but he did like the novel overall. And he's also noticing how much he appreciates the care taken to have continuity with the show and even other books. Uh, So that kind of effort on John Jackson Miller's part was noticed by David. So thanks for that comment, David. And Justin Ozer thought this was a great interview and he loves what he's seen in season two and seeing this on a big scale in the books. And uh, he did point out that, you know, he knows that we can't cover everything in the interview, but he wanted to point out number one uh, and non were in the book. We briefly, I remember one point talk about number one. And honestly, Justin, as we were going through the interview, I had those two characters in mind as we were getting towards the end. I'm like, we haven't talked about them. And, but yeah, we were starting to run out of time. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And, uh, he said he also pictures the actors that the voices felt 
like they do on the series. So it was easy to picture the actors from the Discovery series playing the parts in the book. So he gives this novel 10 out of 10 boundless Rengru hybrids working together in harmony. Excellent. You know, every time you hear the name non, I just get hungry. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm always hungry. Well, Kay Frick says another great interview. Uh, she does say that John Jackson Miller is not one of her favorite Star Trek authors. Uh, and she figures she knows why, because she's one of those Trekkers who is not also a Star Wars fan. So that's kind of coming into play there. Uh, she feels that something about his style seems a little more Star Wars action focused without enough Trek character development. However, The Enterprise War, she says, is her favorite of his books so far. And that looks to be because it has so many great character arcs in it. And she also brings up Robert Petkoff's reading of it, of the audiobook version, uh, something that the author brought up as well. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to any of his work, but this is definitely not the first time I've seen praise for it. So that's really cool. I should check that out sometime. And she also says, by the way, she has never purchased any comic books before in her life. And she figures that the, the Picard Countdown series will be her first. So that's kind of exciting. I'm, I'm kind of eager to hear her thoughts on that. Yeah, and we'll be giving our thoughts on it too. And then we have Janessa Ciarda, and she says, I liked how Miller rehabilitated Connolly's character in this book. At the same time, he did seem to be the same blue shirt that got redshirted in less than one episode. Get what I mean? Yes, Janessa, I totally get what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think a non-Star Trek fan would look at that and go, what the heck? But now we're, we're speaking the same language. Well, what sure. are these shirts? Colors? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jen Foley says uh, that one thing she found interesting was that while all the previous Discovery novel writers we've had on were able to talk about how much information they had about the scripts and when... Miller said that he was bound not to discuss it, which she feels was too bad since those discussions made up some of the most interesting parts of the interviews with David Mack, Dayton Ward, Una McCormick, and James Swallow. But it was still good to hear John Jackson Miller's perspective on several aspects of the novel. Uh, it was the first novel of Miller's that she's read and she really enjoyed it. Now, interestingly, this got a response from John Jackson Miller uh, which I thought was really interesting. He says, you may be seeing there my own reticence. I was working on four different media properties last year, all with different systems and procedures for providing and protecting information. And rather than confuse one's rules with another, I just try to avoid the problem. Uh, it's probably a good policy. <laughs> yes. You don't want to get in trouble with uh, any of the studios or publishing houses that you're kind of bound by NDAs with and that sort of thing. So uh, kind of understandable there for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, the fact that he was also writing something that was taking place within a season, he probably had to be more careful than maybe some other authors that were doing something before the series. But mm -hmm. anyway, but yeah, totally agree with that. So uh, Oz Trekkie says that he just finished the most excellent novel and podcast. And uh, he says that the he loves how the authors are able to tie in all the moving parts together and stitch up a great story seamlessly at is a fantastic ability and John does an awesome job in this novel to connect all the dots between seasons one and two. So he says it's a good star Trek story and it's a good story. And he gave it five stars out of five. Excellent. Uh, high praise for sure. So yeah, it seems a lot of people, a lot of the reviews I've been seeing online for the enterprise war 
have been very glowing, very positive. So I think this is an excellent entry into uh, Star Trek. And it seems that most of the uh, people that commented on our post would agree with that. Yes. And uh, so far, I think all the Discovery novels have been really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely been uh, been a good run for sure. Uh, let's hope it keeps up with the next one, which is coming out in December. So looking forward to that. But before we get there, uh, we have some comics to talk about. So let's uh, jump into the feature and welcome a couple of special guests to help us discuss those comics. What do you say? Yes, let's do it. Open that door. So this week for the feature, we have kind of a special feature. This is a comic series that came out quite some time ago that we're revisiting Thanks in part to the Eagle Moss Star Trek graphic novel collection, which means we can revisit some of these old comics and it gives you listeners the opportunity to get your hands on some of this stuff. So uh, we're going to be talking about the first four issues of Marvel's early voyages series. And these featured the missions of Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise before Kirk took command, which also kind of ties in nicely with what we've just gotten in season two of Discovery. But Bruce and I didn't want to discuss this alone, so we have a couple of special guests, uh, a pair of uh, really great podcasters who've never actually been on the show before. So please welcome Barry DeFord and Shashank Avaru. Barry, how's it going? I am very well, Dan. It's good to see you uh, uh, virtually. I mean, sometimes uh, it's easy to see you at the grocery store, so uh, (laughs) that's nice as well. But um, no, it's wonderful to be here. That's such a great idea. You guys should have done the show from the grocery store together. That would have been really awesome. From the live from the produce department, it's Dan Gunther and Barry DeFord (laughs) to talk about Star Trek. Yeah, we'd be very popular. I'm I'm sure you would be so cool because you're in the frozen food sections. (laughs) Well, also joining us, as I mentioned, is Shashank Avaru. Shashank, welcome to Literary Tracks. Hey, Bart. I'm happy to be here. I am not at a grocery store. I am in my house, but uh, I'm I'm very very excited to be here. I know we've we've talked about doing this for a long time. I'm excited to. I've been on podcasts with Bruce before because I was lucky enough to be part of some of the episodes he did with his reaction show after season two episodes uh, with Brandy Chocola, which yes. is a lot of fun. Yes, that, and that was I'm live excited. too. Where this yeah, one it was live. So yeah. everything we were doing was clearly like unprepared and it showed i'm sure but it was it was a lot of fun and this this is a good time too i'm excited to be here and talk comics with you guys excellent yeah i really enjoyed the live from the edge episodes that that you were on so it's really a a huge pleasure to have you on literary treks finally so very cool wait dan i'm sorry you only liked the live episodes when shashank was on not when i I didn't tell you that did i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> makes sense to me i don't know what the fuss is about <laughs> this is an awkward way for you to find out bruce sorry about that. <laughs> well it also shows you didn't like the episodes you were on dan because you were on some of those episodes yeah not particularly i didn't go back to watch those <laughs> <laughs> i was just really jealous that he got to be on the season finale and i wasn't so that was the one i was i heard and i was like oh, i'm so mad at dan right now but he's doing such a good job well claim Aww. claim the season finale for season three right now and you're good to go yes dibs so, um, <laughs> i wasn't on any of these oh Uh-oh. okay uh uh season three yeah i Premier. I don't know how to tell you this, Barry. You're just not good enough. <laughs> well, I am, I am your silver medal, Shashank. 
<laughs> well, Barry, you were in the grocery store. I, I couldn't do it because you were there. Right. Know. Yes. That, that's where we're. That's where we're selling our. our uh, Bruce and I are selling our brand new uh, rice of the sea, which is brine shrimp. Yes. <laughs> Well, what? Barry got so mad that he did not get on your live show that he's starting to do his own live show that will start uh, the next year, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll be doing uh, – so we're on the, the Trek Geeks Network, uh, Paula Trex is, and uh, Shashank and I are uh, just brand new additions to the Trek Geeks Network. It's been a, a, a fine start there. And uh, yeah, I'll also be doing a live call-in show too, um, post-Picard episodes. So uh, we're going to be doing Picard Live and I'll be doing a live show. So I may be talking to you, Bruce, about some of the fun fun pitfalls that you find out about live shows um, before you try them out. Yes, we'll have to talk. And maybe if we do live shows at the same time, we call into each other. Yeah. Oh, we could we do like a big Star Trek oh. heckle. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> you could have like a, a kind of rivalry going on. It could be, you know, like a West Side Story type. We could thing like hail each other. Like, shows. We could like like send out hailing frequencies to one another, <laughs> <laughs> and like like uh, have like full on um, uh, Tomalock Picard like standoffs and stuff. I love it. That I, yeah, I, I and just just so and if anybody. You know, I was listening, you know, Trek FM wondering, oh, there's going to be a live Picard show on Trek FM. I don't know that. So just throwing that out there. I, there's no plans at this point, as far as I know. Postcards from the hmm. Edge could just come on live for the hell of it and just, you know, be like a rogue, rogue podcast, rogue live podcast calling into other live podcasts. <laughs> yes. There you go. I, I would watch that for sure. Well, today we're here not to talk about Star Trek Picard, unfortunately, because I'm really looking forward to these discussions now, though. But we are going to, like I said, talk about the early voyages, uh, first four issues. So the first issue, let's jump right in here. Uh, the first issue is called Flesh of My Flesh, and this kind of uh, introduces the crew that we're going to get to know here. Um, first of all, I kind of want to ask everyone just kind of your, uh, off the top reflections on, uh, what you thought of this story and, and the characters and, and the setup for this series. Well, I would say off the hob, we get, um, we get that, that sort of classic characterization that Jeffrey Hunter did of Pike's sentimentality, right? He loves his crew. Um, and, and that sets him apart from Kirk in a lot of ways. So I'm not saying that Kirk didn't love his crew and, um, you know, or that he wouldn't let them know, but I find Pike is just a little more, a little more gushy. And in this first one, you know, you really kind of get inside of, um, or they, they try to sort of poke inside of Pike's head a little bit about getting the enterprise and whatnot. And, I don't know. It, it's a good it's a good way to sort of delineate Pike from the rest of the Starfleet captains who we have seen on different shows. I I am going to hold some some constructive criticism about maintaining that character and the way he acts later. But in this one, you definitely kind of get this, you know, kind of vulnerable, you know, he's he is he's but the sum of his parts kind of leader that that's sort of the impression I got to start. Shashank, what do you what do you, what do you think about uh the characters and, and Pike maybe in particular. So I, I think of all the four, issue one is one I, I enjoyed. I wouldn't say the most. I definitely enjoyed it for the entertainment value, for the fact that it told a complete story within itself. You kind of don't have to read it to get back into number two, number three, and so on. But it, it felt like a really good one shot and a good introduction to what they were trying to do. Uh, just a little bit about the creators behind it. Dan Abnett, the writer, and Pat Zurcher, these people would go on to become 
some of the bigger uh, Marvel and DC artists and writers in comics in general. So this came out, I believe, sometime in the late 90s. I want to say 97 or 98. Yeah, uh, 97. And it's it was just, it, you can tell that these people are starting out, but they have talent, that show too. I enjoyed the artwork in particular, especially watching the, the space creatures and how they entangle Pike. And uh, I enjoyed the, that late 90s comics of it all. And the action and some of the dialogue. Uh, I, I don't know if it's something that... To me, the Star Trek comic gold standard is mirror broken. I'm sure people listening and you guys are familiar with it. Uh, I don't know if it quite gets there, but it's an, the number one is definitely an entertaining, worthwhile read to me. I'm glad you brought up the artwork because that's something that I feel this series just right off the start... Uh, obviously they're coming in strong with the artwork. Uh, and, uh, I, I was kind of blown away by, I, I remember it looking really good. I read some of these issues when they first came out, but I thought maybe I was kind of like remembering through the haze of memory and looking back with rose colored glasses, but man, the art is incredible in these. And, uh, there's some really great pages in this, in this book for sure. Yeah. And this issue is a double size issue. So it's, you know, the length of two comics. And one of the things I liked about it is that it is an introduction to the crew. So we've seen the crew on the cage, but then there's additional members that we have in this comic, including one that's more alien-like, which is good to see more aliens on the ship. But there's a two-page foldout where it goes through the different crew members and who they are and the backstory. So I really appreciated that because I thought, if you're going into a new series, why not introduce all these other crew members that are going to be major characters as the series goes on? And we already know a little bit of their background before we jump into it. Yeah, the, the artwork mm. really does kind of hit me quite a bit, uh, it, it's sort of reminiscent of sort of a Johnny Quest kind of look. So I really felt like the artwork, the way they constructed the scenes and everything was very true to the TOS feel, right? Like even, you, you know, you're talking about that spread where you see the crew members and sort of as they're getting recruited on, it, it looks like they're just sort of like upper deck hockey carts almost the way they have yeah. them set down and stuff. And it it's those little little details that I think maybe maybe to some degree shows the fidelity that they're trying to give to the 1960s feel and i'm i'm i wonder in some cases some of my uh, my hang-ups with the story come from maybe that desire to be as true to 1960s storytelling as possible and so you know there there's a little bit of the 90s that kind of bleeds through from place to place um but overall yeah no i i would give the artwork top marks it was uh, it was very very nice to look at very beautiful uh, beautiful work there so like i said we do get uh, some introductions to some of the crew and you guys mentioned that uh, that splash page like the upper deck uh, baseball card lineup of the enterprise crew um were there any characters uh, that early on just kind of jumped out at you that you thought were were really cool additions? Um, we mentioned uh, the Liren communications officer, Nano, uh, is someone I definitely remember from reading these back in the day that I thought was a really cool character and, and kind of neat. Something that you wouldn't see if it was a television show produced in the 60s, but something that you can do with a comic series that you can't with a television show. Yeah, I'm, I'll 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 jump in first here. I think I think for me the most interesting group from or the most interesting character from the first episode would actually be the aliens. The um, 
hold on, I'm just going to, the Ngul, the Ngultor, um, they're sort of, uh, first of all, their ships look like if like the Zentradi from, from Macross and the Zerg from Starcraft had a baby. And, um, you know, it's funny how they refer to, uh, Pike's, Pike is like wetware, right? And, and they're, they're sort of kind of almost turning everyone into sort of like biological, elements of a of a of something you know referring to the ship as dead and and all that sort of stuff um it's sort of interesting just that they they clearly acknowledge the sentience of pike and his crew but um but not as any kind of moral need to protect that sentience they really don't care and i found that you know there's a borgish kind of nature to that and then being like well why wouldn't you want to you know amalgamate with us that's what we do all the time and so it also kind of takes away perspective so it's it really kind of reminds me of like if a fish could negotiate with you before you pulled it into the boat to eat it, right? Like it would be trying to tell you in its sort of fish way, like, please don't eat me. Don't eat me at all. I don't want to be eaten, but that doesn't stop you. And it kind of was neat to sort of see this species that is completely unmoved by any sort of charm that humans or any kind of other biological life could give it. So they were fun. I like them. Excellent. Yeah. That, that they're, they're so completely different. Like there's no living with them. Like it's just there's they're they're on completely different levels as far as how they view you know their world view basically or universe view I guess. <laughs> I I for one particularly enjoyed Nano the the alien on the ship and some of the hijinks that he was pulling especially toward the end where he with his mind releases one of the crew members who are stuck in there uh, that felt pretty cool to me. I just speaking of the artwork in general uh, especially with the characters. I don't know if you look at the cover or uh, maybe spend a little bit more time with the characters themselves, you kind of notice that they quite do not look like their television counterparts. And I have a theory on this. I think it's uh, it's it happens in the action figure community a lot, where a particular license gets access to the characters of the show or the movie, but they don't get access to the actual actors. So they have to draw them not quite like them, but you still have to kind of find a way out. So I think that's what happened with the early Voyager series is they were like, oh, yeah, you can have Pike and number one and Spock and all the other characters you've got to bring in. You just can't have Jeffrey Hunter and Michelle Roddenberry and, uh, you know, uh, Leonard Nimoy. So try to figure a way out. Uh, and I think in some ways that worked out to their advantage because you can tell that the, the people behind this comic read a lot of manga. You can, you can I don't know if you guys can see it, but there's a little bit of influence of manga in general. And I think that goes well with that pilot Spock, especially on his, with his face on the cover. That really stood out to me. So that, that was so nano for me in general. I, I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent. Oh no, that's perfect. <laughs> no, I I like what you're saying. But I hadn't thought about that. I mean, the characters do look a lot like the actors, but not exactly like the actors. Which means, in a lot of ways, it gives the artist a little more freedom to do things instead of just using publicity shots. Where sometimes we read comics, and you're like, oh, you know that in that panel, it looks like they just drew that publicity shot of that actor in the you know, in the role or from you know that. Oh, it's from that episode. Like you recognize certain drawings that are coming from actual shots from the show or, or from the publicity shots. But in this case, I didn't see anything like that. I mean, maybe there was a little bit with Spock, I think, in one of the frames that kind of looked like the, uh, maybe something from the cage, maybe just from a certain angle. But I mean, 
I think that really frees up the artist not to have to get it exactly looking like the actor. Yeah. Um, the only thing I was going to add to that is that uh, Yeoman Cusack had me falling down the uncanny valley because he looks like a young Louis C.K. And that was weir- huh. weird. I, I kept looking at him like, oh, oh, oh God. <laughs> so I, could, I couldn't do his accent in my head either. I just kept getting that like New York accent. Um, I do remember, like I said, I read these at the time and I, I kept looking at the back, like towards the end of the comic to see when like the letters from readers section started coming in. And, and we didn't get that in these issues, but I do remember somebody writing in and saying like, what's the deal with Dr. Boyce? He had, you know, a shock of white hair in the cage and this guy looks completely different. And I, I kind of remember a tongue in cheek answer being like, oh, you don't like his new youthful uh visage you know you should just feel good for him or something like that but then also saying like there are certain things with rights and certain actors and certain estates and that sort of thing so uh you know there definitely were some issues there apparently there's also a typographical error when april and um um when april and pike are talking and they say around the alpha quadrant it just says around he alpha quadrant oh yeah i remember seeing that yeah yeah (laughs) I'm an English teacher, so I, I can't un I can't unsee that sort of stuff. Uh, this was the nineties, yeah. buddy. There were so many comics. It was like the the how the uh, the dot com bubble blew oh. because there were just so many websites. There were just so many comics. Nobody was doing any kind of editorializing. They were like, "Let's get it out. We need to get it out right now. Let it go. Let it go." Yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, any final thoughts on this issue that you guys want to share before we move on to uh, the next issue here? I think this one does the best for nostalgia because I do actually quite like April and Pike's conversation where, you know, um, they're saying, you know, like, oh, April and the Enterprise are synonymous. And I kind of chuckle to myself because what what person doesn't think of of April when they think of Robert April, when they talk about the Enterprise, or even Christopher Pike, I mean, who else could have ever captained the Enterprise, for heaven's sakes, right? So there's a little <laughs> bit of sort of tongue-in-cheek nostalgia that I enjoyed about that. But uh, overall, you know, it kind of puts you in, in the position. And yeah, I mean, to, to understand the whole concept of what's coming forth, I just was expecting this to start an arc, not to be a closed story. So I found that kind of jarring at the end. But hey, it was a good, it was a good little kind of one-shot, as Shashank had mentioned. It's also nice to note that nobody really won at the end. It kind of went down on a sour note because they don't really reach an agreement. They leave these aliens who are biologically dependent on flesh to feed themselves. And they're like, oh, guess what? We need to get out and we need to go. And you just hear Pike contemplating, <clears throat> which was uh, an interesting way to end it. Uh, but I, my favorite thing in this entire issue was just watching Pike this sounds weird, but the scenes of Pike suffering, I don't know why the audience enjoys it so much, but we've seen season two, we've seen the cage. Pike just cannot seem to find an end to his suffering, but <laughs> this one was just a, on a whole other level. No, and I was there for it. I was flipping page to page. I was just going. I'm with you. I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of get tired of having Pike suffer all the time, but... He's the photo it- of Trek. but it makes so much sense because when you watch the cage and then these issues do a good job tying into that and building to that moment that I appreciated it in this series. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting choice putting it shortly. Well, 
you know, a few adventures before the cage. And we'll get to that, the issues that deal directly with that and building up to that, I think was an interesting choice. I did like the ending with Pike and how it's very contemplative and it's, it's a good introduction to him. He's a quintessential Starfleet captain, right? He does what he deems necessary. He does what he has to do to save his ship and crew and, potentially the rest of the worlds of the alpha quadrant but he mourns the necessity of having to do it too which i thought was uh you know very typical starfleet and and fitting i think with what we've come to see of pike in discovery as well all right so moving on now issue number two the fires of pharos and i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly uh so this is one that uh we get an introduction to a very familiar villain in star trek or a very familiar antagonist uh as well as setting up this region of space that they're in that's kind of under constant uh uh, harassment by pirates and that sort of thing so uh starting this one off what are people's kind of general thoughts about this one i don't know from the four that we read this one seemed like the most forgettable especially uh, considering yeah you're right we do get that villain part and i feel like they were trying to do their own wrath of khan with this issue by putting the villain against the captain directly and making them talk to each other and you know the the hero coming out triumphantly at the end by doing something ridiculous like blowing up the entire <laughs> uh, uh the the whole thing they were fighting over that seemed it felt very much like you know what they had a wrath of khan with the tos crew maybe we're going to try to do our own wrath of khan and in the process it just became another uh, page not really a page turner it was it kind of felt a little tedious a little light on story in general to me it was the one that that felt the lightest in terms of content but it was it was a filler for me so i'm i'm just going to be honest that one wasn't one i was a huge fan of yeah i'm um i'm kind of with shashank on that one that this one this one could have been maybe a little bit more than than it was allowed to be maybe in some cases I actually kind of had my hopes up and maybe it's out of a bit of disappointment over this story that I'm, that I kind of put it at the bottom of my list of, of what I liked about each of these ones. Uh, Fort Apache, they make a mention to that. That's an old John Wayne movie. Um, it was, uh, it was uh, directed by John Ford. Shirley Temple was in it, but like as like a grown, a grown woman. And, um, I think it was Henry Fonda kind of plays this like arrogant leader who kind of muscles his way around when really this, this like embattled union fort in the American West is being attacked by indigenous groups. And the kind of the message I got from that story was that, and sort of John Wayne's point in all of it is that it will actually these indigenous people kind of deserve our respect and they're attacking us because we're kind of like up in their grill here. So maybe we should find some kind of like friendly compromise. Whereas in this case, Pike goes full Kirk, I find like he, he, he really breaks ca- uh, character and I'm kind of pop- jumping to the end, but like Pike just destroyed that planet's e- ecosystem and it's burning for decades and he destroyed Federation. Like, I mean, I guess infrastructure isn't a thing in a post-scarcity environment, but he destroyed like Federation infrastructure and like, did a whole bunch of stuff just because like a couple of arrogant Klingons acted like turds. So I think more or less, um, yeah, this one could have been a little bit more. It, it was sort of just like a 
bing bang shoot 'em up kind of uh, episode with some real '90s dialogue, like heck yes and stuff. I, I love the old comic books code. That was that was loads of fun. So I feel like this this was the comic book with the greatest amount of potential and the least amount of material. Yeah, I agree with that too. And it did feel out of character to me when Pike, you know, basically blew up the planet in a sense. I mean, I was just kind of surprised by that because I thought this is a really good setup for something they could use later and maybe they still could. I like the whole lighthouse uh, aspect of this, that there's this device that's a lighthouse to alert, you know, and, and help ships find their way through this nebula and all this. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the gold rush they refer to even as uh, all these ships coming into this area. This isn't in Federation space, which I like that, you know, because it's really not up to Pike to determine what to do there. It's not in Federation space, but he makes that decision. But the fact that all these ships are trying to come there for the dilithium, it reminded me of the Greg Cox book that we just reviewed on the last episode, Mm -hmm. the Antares uh, Maelstrom, where there was a gold rush. So that was kind of cool that this was similar in that story element as the book we just read. And like, and I like seeing the Klingons, the old yeah. type of Klingons. Those D sevens looked, yeah. looked, were, looked rather handsome. Again, the artwork is impeccable. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, like you say, the artwork in this issue, just gorgeous. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loving that we're seeing more of these characters and, uh, I think Tyler is another one that really does not look like Tyler from the cage, but uh, you know, the new characters too. chief engineer grace. We get a little bit of him as well in his element in engineering, which is kind of nice. I do have to agree with uh, what you guys are saying about Pike's actions in this, in this issue. He's very heavy handed. And like you said, this isn't in Federation space. This isn't under Federation jurisdiction. And he kind of even calls himself out on some stuff a little bit before he blows up the whole planet saying like, yeah, we did keep this secret and that could look bad and that kind of thing. Uh, it, it seems very like they're pushing the Federation's weight around in this region, which, uh, you know, if I was any group, whether I was directly involved, but just looking in, I would very much question the Federation's motives and actions here. If I, if I may, um, Okay, so if if Star Trek, you know, is sort of a wagon train to the stars slash kind of Horatio Hornblower sort of thing, they they are not in Federation space, much like if an English ship, the you know, the Cuddy Sark was floating through the the you know, between Dar es Salaam and Madagascar, um, near the Indian Ocean, it's not necessarily imperial imperial england's uh seas at that point because they're past south africa but i would maybe say that it's not federation space but i'm pretty sure someone or some group may have some kind of claim be it cultural sacred or something to that planet and he's just destroyed it it would be something like Mm -hmm. you know fighting over a part of a part of you know you know, say the Tanzanian coastline in Africa and one captain just gets the idea of like, well, it doesn't belong to the Portuguese and it doesn't belong to the English. Let's just set the whole forest on fire is sort of how it feels to a degree. And maybe I'm over reading it, but uh, there is something a little uh, entertainingly colonial about the whole thing. What's mm-hmm. more interesting is that Spock, that character that we really know who stands for logic and protocol has zero objections <laughs> yeah. to blowing up the planet. He basically is just sitting there 
And I, I don't know where they thought that was okay. I, even if it was 1997, when I know people kind of, it has been a few years since The Undiscovered Country came out and the TOS crew beat their farewells. But I don't know, man, that wasn't cool. Spock, I, I get I get, a, I get all the pesky humans doing their horrible human acts, but not cool, man. I, I feel like there just maybe wasn't, I, and I can't put myself in the head of a writer or something like that, but I feel like there just wasn't enough thought given to it. It was like, how can we get them out of this situation and best those pesky Klingons? Aha, here we go. The Federation has come out on top and those Klingons, we sure showed them without really giving a lot of thought to kind of the wider implications, uh, which is unfortunate because I think... Uh, there's a lot of room for nuance in this story that is just kind of glossed over. Um, it's it's even harder for me to forgive this, uh, especially since it was 1997 when we were at the height of DS9 and Voyager was really trying to coming in and people had seen what the Klingons really are and they're not Terrans. Like they're not all fighting amongst themselves, vying for power. If you look at this issue, and I went back to it a few times, Except for one page. Every page you see the Klingons in, they're fighting. Yeah. There is no one unit page where they're all unified against something and they're celebrating being Klingon. It's just, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill Pike. Ugh. That was mm-hmm. painful to read. It was just like, that's not who the Klingons are, guys. Yeah. Well, and especially for an issue that's introducing what's going to be uh, who is going to be a, a recurring villain. Um, the series is unfortunately fairly short, so we only get him a couple more times. But this Klingon, Kaj, who I think, you know, there's some interesting things there. Uh, he was born uh, with a, a crippled arm, which, you know, in Klingon society, based on what we know of them, is something that would generally proved to be a big detriment to advancement but he's the commander of a klingon ship you know i i'm interested in learning more about these characters and kaj in particular but like you said we what we get here is very surface and very caricature which uh you know by design i I think the plan is to kind of you know expand on that more as we go forward but it's an unfortunate beginning i think also, everyone who's um, uh, sorry, Bruce, everyone who's who's listening right now, if you're near a computer, just um, do an image search for Kaj in the comic, and then do an image search for sort of the late '90s, early 2000s version of Rajal Ghul in Batman. Mm. It's the same character. I love crossovers. <laughs> I'm glad he's getting work. Uh, oh wow, that's cool. <laughs> well, there, there you go. We don't have to make it look like an actor. We make it look like another character in another comic series. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Ooh, DC, Marvel. Ooh, this could be mm-hmm. could be interesting. Okay. Well, uh, if if there's nothing uh, that you guys want to um, wrap up with for this issue, we can move on to the next one. Or yeah, I, I think it's time we blow up this issue and go to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> this issue, you know, if uh, if I can't have it in my hands, no one can have it. We're just gonna blow it up and you know burn it. No one can read it. May it burn for decades. And even though I am the science officer and heavy on protocol, I will just sit back and not say anything. Sit back and go, wow, you lit a beacon. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So issue number three, our dearest blood. And uh, 
for myself, I have to say, I've been enjoying these issues so far. You know, I, you know, there's some issues with number two, of course, that we all had, but you know, there, there's, these are new adventures that we haven't heard of before. Kind of cool getting introduced to this crew, but in this third issue, now we're jumping into some stuff that uh, we know about that we've seen play out in one form or another or had heavily referenced. And this one, you know, we've got the cover of this issue and it's the battle on Rigel seven, which, you know, to the typical comic buyer, uh, okay, that's neat. But for those of us who are Star Trek fans who have watched the cage a million times, oh, cool. Rigel seven. We all know what happens there. So yeah, right off the bat again with this one, what are your guys kind of first impressions getting into this issue? The, uh, the big thing I put on my notes right at the beginning in all caps is the Rigelians are psycho. <laughs> just, <laughs> just well characterized, complete psychos. I think, I think, um, yeah, I, I think, I think it was a good story. I think it was a little rushed, but, uh, they, they didn't really, um, they didn't really bury the, the deceit very well. And, um, I think we're meant to really like Cusack and we see him doing all these sort of, he's sort of shoehorned into like that party where he's like very prominent in the center of like, now everyone's going to learn how to mix a drink for me. I'm not going to die anytime soon, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it, it, it was, it was good in that respect, but, uh, at the same time. Um, I found his and Pike's dialogue, like if you look at how he, how Pike and number one talk to each other, which is a shame she has not come up as much so far. I really think her arc picks up so much in the next uh, comic. So I'm maybe kind of saving yes. it for that. But you get that, <laughs> you get a lot of little kind of tendrils and roots that connect at the first one where you hear Pike having these dialogues with uh, number one about, you know, joining the ship and uh, or joining his crew. And he's, she's reluctant. She's like, well, actually I want to command a medical frigate. I don't even think this is necessary for me, but at the same time, like, you know, serving on the enterprise under captain Pike, that'd be pretty cool. So sure. Like I found their, their dialogue to be a lot more authentic. Whereas for some reason I just found, um, Cusack and Pike's dialogue to be kind of wooden almost like it was like, well, you're my best buddy and you're the best. And it, it felt very much like a cheesy Vietnam, like they should be like on a, on a boat on the Mekong and stuff like that, telling each other how they're going to be good friends after the war. And then one of them just gets shot up or something. This is just personal preference on my part. And I'm not necessarily making any value judgments or anything i've never been a big huge fan of bro characters and cusack feels like a bro yeah total <laughs> and bro. i'm just like uh whatever <laughs> <laughs> well I, just my initial response to this is sometimes i get tired of seeing stories about pike that feel like they're either prequels or sequels to the cage you know, it's like, okay, we don't always have to relate every story of Pike back to the cage. And this one starts off, of course, that way. However, saying that, I really appreciated this being a prequel to the cage because that's what made it interesting to me is to see him on Rigel 7 and see, okay, these are why he had these visions later into the cage. And this is what this is what occurred before that mission. And there was just some. I don't know if we want to get into this now, but I mean, there's just some surprising elements in here because when, when the Rigelians attack with the sword and kill a crewman, I was actually not expecting that. And I actually said out loud, out loud, whoa, wait, I wasn't expecting that. 
And now I was into it because I'm like, okay, this is going to get crazy. And I kind of like that. So what started off as like, uh, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this. I really was starting to like as it was going on. I definitely mm-hmm. like that sword and sandal aspect to it. It was it was uh, unpredictable. And I like the setting, especially when they brought us down and they really showed us the environment. Uh, like the, the Zetwa Fortress, I think it's called, where Telza turns around and she shows the fortress in a splash page. The, that they took the time to show that kind of art, really taking us down there. I appreciated that, especially after the last issue, which all mostly took place in space. And it was just two ships staring at each other. But I believe this issue as what I have come to call the Arium Factor, which is if there is a character in the background who for the most time is not doing anything through the issues, but then you find out that in one issue, there in every page, that person is going to die. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. That's brilliant. That, yeah. that is Star Trek. Those are the rules of Star Trek writing now. Yeah. And uh, Cusack standing off to the side going, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cusack definitely has the arium factor. And unfortunately, that did not bode well for him. But yeah, for me, the, the sword and sandal aspect was cool. I really liked the Rigelians and the action that, that we got. It was a welcome change going back to some of that. I know why it's connected to the cage when you see the scenes and you look at it from that lens, but... Nevertheless, it was cool to get some sword and hand fight action for me. And I'm sorry, Cusack, you had to go. <laughs> I was found like I'm, I'm not I wasn't a big fan of the character as he was written. But from the very beginning, I kind of liked the tragedy of the character going in because you know that this takes place before the cage. Uh, and you know there's a line in the cage where Pike is talking to Boyce and he talks about Rigel Seven and he says three dead, including my own yeoman. And I, I just like, when's that going to happen? And then you see this issue, the Battle of Rigel Seven, and you're like, oh, Cusack's going to die. OK. And I kind <laughs> of like that kind of built in drama with the character, which is interesting, you know, that that they've set him up as someone that. Like, if you're paying close attention, you know he's going to die at some point. So, and also, I'm, I'm, I was kind of surprised that we got to, you know, this and the cage as quick as we did in the series. Yeah. But at the same time, going back to what Bruce said, where, you know, every story with Pike has to relate to the cage somehow up to this point, it seems. Uh, it's kind of nice they're getting it out of the way quickly, too. Like, they're getting to it, and then we're going to move past it in a couple of issues. So there's there's kind of some interesting uh, way to tell the story here. And as we lead up to the cage, this came to mind. And something about what Bruce said earlier about how the uh, – and, and I think yeah, Shashank had mentioned as well. I think we all kind of discussed it more betterly said. Uh, <clears throat> that wasn't very well said. Anyways, I, I find that – the characters don't quite look like they're actors. You're right. And I think that's because I'm, I started to see something, little flashes in both Pike's face and in number one's face. Is this a representation? And maybe this is totally me reading in way too deep, but is Pike kind of our John F. Kennedy in the sense that Jeffrey Hunter died tragically. Pike, Pike's story ended quite tragically as the first pilot And I think we've been sort of trying to sort of what if him, right? And I think a lot of people, what if the death and loss of Kennedy in the 1960s as well, which I think also has a lot to do with the hopeful nature of why Star Trek TOS was the way it was, right? It was part of that that hopeful 
you know, great society sort of thing that was brought on by LBJ afterward as well, to some degree. And, and the, the, you know, Martin Luther King actually telling, uh, Nichelle Nichols to stay on the show and stuff. There's, there's a lot of connective tissue there. And I'm wondering if, if maybe it's just the artist who's, who's doing it, but I get flashes of JFK and Jackie O in the faces of number one and Pike sometimes in this episode is where it starts. And then it really ramps up in the next one. And I wonder if that's sort of us and, and even now, yeah, with Discovery giving Pike his due finally at this point, they're they're 20 years out from even, even well, 22 years out from getting that yet. And I wonder if to some degree this is us sort of reaching out to try to what if a tragic character who is inexorably linked to some huge milestones in, in our in our personal fandom and in the franchise of the series, but also in sort of the mythology of our captains, right? He really is the only captain we lost. Interesting. I I, I like that take. And it's, the, you know, this is why we need people from Politrex on. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know. I was like, this is really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, that's an interesting connection. And one, I have to say, like, I did not consider at all. But now that you're saying that. Oh, you like, can't unsee it, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. And, it, and it's, they are figures that are in our public consciousness in a, in a, like they're burned into, um, our 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 20th century mythology i would say so i i don't think that's a stretch at all i think that's uh, it's a really clever uh connection and whether it's conscious or unconscious it's definitely there i i'm totally on board with that i mean just physically speaking if you look at number one in these issues she kind of looks like jackie o especially with that haircut that was made famous in the 60s by jackie o and uh, mm-hmm. the of course every the the tragedy of john f kennedy is all well to known i i kind of for, for the four issues we've read uh, of course apart from what we get into with the cage i also thought dalza was a pretty strong villain she was she was able to convince uh, pike and the crew pretty easily and take them through the twists and turns before she does what she does at the end uh, i appreciated that it was also nice to see why Vina looks like Talza in the cage. Yes. I like that connection too. I love that. And uh, it, it's it's just, it, it goes to show just how much you can milk one episode if you're trying to do a comic on a franchise. And But it's ironic that we say that because anything you do with the cage is kind of, they, they're trying to milk it. And they milked it with season two of Discovery. And I'm sure eventually we're going to get that show, which is going to be these five-year voyages. So, it's nice that I don't know when they'll stop the stretching, but I'm on. I'm along for the ride. Be it in these comics, be it in the novels, be it in season two, and then whatever that new Star Trek show will be with Pike. Full disclosure: if uh, and and again for likeness, um, if I encountered a space alien on a dip, you know who's part of kind of a diplomatic attaché to talk to me, and she looked like Kim Basinger, I would definitely listen to what she had to say. Oh, so we have the Kennedys and Kim Basinger right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's sort of a throwaway, but uh, LA I thought you were going to say Towser was Marilyn Monroe. No, she doesn't quite look like Marilyn, but actually that's probably a much, wow, That there's the connection right there. Um, yeah, no, Talza is Marilyn. Oh my gosh. And then that, yeah, holy cow. Okay. We're through the rabbit hole. Are you guys hole. still glad you had the co-host of Polytrex on doing all the actor talking? <laughs> 
Oh, this is great. One thing that occurred to me is I, I love that uh, the decisions made by, you know, a crew on a fairly shoestring budget, you know, years ago to like, in particular, the Kalar in the cage, which, you know, was like, let's raid all of the period costumes we can to create some sort of, you know, scary person here. All of that's informing the entire look of this planet and these people in this issue and i just like that's so i don't know there's something really funny about that but also really cool and you know creating that swords and sandals environment based on you know those decisions made in 1964 i think that's great (laughs) one thing about the issues in general and what i would recommend everybody do if they get a hold of these is to look at the ads because it is like looking through a time capsule because i was a avid reader of comic books at that time and i recognize some of the some of the ads they've done um there's actually one that i need to find now it's it's bruce lee in the x-men game of death and deceit so that was just like whoa cool (laughs) but then there's like a subway commercial where a kid is like pulling his little brother on a skateboard on his bike and it's like take your brother to say to subway for some reason or whatever but it's like at the bottom it's like don't try this at home and i'm like (laughs) you're literally like that would be like me smoking a cigarette being like come to my store and buy something and then be like don't smoke you know so (laughs) well these ads work because you know that's 22 years old and i'm looking at an ad for peanut butter crunch and i was thinking gosh i haven't had that cereal in a long time and now i want to go buy it yeah well is that so the ad's still working yeah there's like chocolate chip cookie one yeah, the mm-hmm. yeah. My favorite crunch. is there is an ad in there that says CD-ROMs have never been cooler. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? They are right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I should uh, point out for the people listening, if you're reading this in the Eagle Moss collections, you're not going to see these ads. But uh, if you have the, um, the DVD-ROM collection of the comics... Uh, that they put out, they put out all the Star Trek comics up to, you know, a certain date, which is how we're reading them. Uh, you're going to see these ads. And, you know, if you do have that, go check these out. Please because do. They are great. It's like a sociological mystery box of amazingness. Like there's like Sega Saturn games being advertised. And I'm like, oh, I know what happens to you. Right. It's like it's like way back. <laughs> like, you know, when I was a little kid, my grandpa had all these books about the first or the Second World War and he lived through it. Right. But so I was kind of reading it sort of memory, you know, but I mean, think I've never really thought about like, huh, you know, he lived through that. He knows like he was at a point when like this stuff wasn't resolved yet. And, you know, do you think of the, the console wars and stuff and looking back and being like, oh, man, Sega, you're going to crash and burn and it's going to be horrible and you're going to do everything wrong so it was fun (laughs) to uh it was really fun to kind of go back and sort of memory lane that as well while i was doing it yeah and there there are playstation one games uh being advertised from before it was playstation one yeah (laughs) it was the only one Well, uh, with that, let's jump to the final issue in this collection then. Issue number four, Nor Iron Bars a Cage. And from that title, I think you can discern that this is the uh, inevitable uh, revisit of the cage, the original pilot to Star Trek starring Jeffrey Hunter as Christopher Pike. Now, I really liked their approach to this story. And I I remember this might've been the first issue or the second issue that I actually picked up as a kid. And then I had to find the back issues because I really enjoyed it. 
Um, they tell the story of the cage, but they don't just do a simple retelling. There's some neat narrative tricks here. Uh, it's primarily from the, the perspective of Yeoman Colt, who is just coming aboard the Enterprise as Yeoman Cusack's replacement as, you know, an outsider. I thought that was a brilliant way to tell the story and really gave a new spin on it that I really enjoyed. And I did not feel like this was a rehash of something I'd seen before. Uh, just little things like on the very first page, um, Pike reaching, you know, ripping open her jacket and pulling out her laser pistol, which is a, is a moment I remember from watching that show and just like her perspective on that and going like, you know, Pike seems like a crazed out of control animal right now because he's filling his mind with rage. And what does that look like to someone on the outside of that? Just little things like that. I really enjoyed. So how about you guys? What are your thoughts uh, going into this issue? So this issue makes no apologies about the fact that it's a retelling of the cage. The The thing that it does, it turns it on its head by telling it to us, not from the perspective that we've already seen, which is clearly the person who suffers the most in the issue or in the series of that uh, or in the pilot that we got. Uh, but it tells us this from somebody who, if you think about it weirdly enough, this is their first day on the Enterprise or their real first big mission that they go on. And you kind of get a sense of what people deal with on a daily basis if you're part of a, uh, a crew and a ship that kind of is on the adventure 365 days a year. And you can really tell that Colt is an experience, but she's also trying. And there is, you all, you cannot help but root for the underdog when they're trying that hard. And it, it really also helps that it is all phased in between these important scenes from the cage. So not only are you getting the cage, you're also getting a neat one shot introduction of this character that is going to be instrumental in the future. So I, I really liked how they merged both of those. Yeah, the, the, mm -hmm. and actually, I was, I had not intended to read the cage or to watch the cage again, but I had to because of all the things. Like I was kind of like, okay, you know, I, I think I know the cage well enough. Just, you know, I mean, I can't count how many times I've watched any episode of Star Trek, to be perfectly honest. But, um, you know, I mean, I've seen it enough to be able to quote bits of dialogue in places and, whatnot but um it really was it was a neat neat sort of perspective and and i guess you know despite my sort of criticism sort of at the beginning of this this is where i think this is where i really feel like the the writers snap in and they are still melding a bit more of that 60s dialogue right like mentioning that number one has to also fantasize about her captain kind of thing was kind of like spare me but i you know at the same time it it that's very 1960s, right? Like that, that would not, not happen. Um, but, um, yeah, getting, getting Yeoman Colt's inner, inner monologue throughout this as well. And, and her personal in exchange as she watches Pike try to heal from the loss of a very dear friend and her, like she is, she is a really hard act to follow. And if I was to, if I was to kind of liken this to anything, it's much like when like a really beloved teacher in my school leaves and someone else comes and a new teacher shows up, they are almost automatically like feeling like lambs to the slaughter 
right? How can you, how can you replace someone else? And I think that's a really important thing. And to some degree, almost, this is something that we should be thinking about with new Star Trek series, right? We, we have our beloved series and then we get someone new or something new coming in and our immediate response is, is like just harsh and, and vitriolic, right? Like Pike was not fair to this new yeoman by any stretch of the imagination. And I think we see that, um, you know, we, it, when, when the next generation showed up, there was vitriol. Deep space nine was, you know, the, the weird cousin of, of, you know, um, these shows when, when the Kelvin verse came forward, a lot of people were pissed off about it. Same thing with discovery. I think there's something allegorical to this, that when we look at things from these different angles, we can really see that this, this, this comic book especially kind of looks at, at change as being a necessity and something that, that exists within Star Trek pretty much constantly. Colt didn't Colt didn't just show up out of nowhere. She wasn't just twiddling her thumbs waiting for Captain Pike's command. She was happy on the Hawking. And I think that's important as well of like, you know, anyone in your life who, who replaces someone else or who has to replace someone else either through function or through, you know, whatever circumstance, um, don't expect them to be the person who's left that that person is gone. And, and I think we need to think of that with our Star Trek series as well. Like if you like the next generation, then watch the next generation. If you like De deep space nine, great. But if you don't like something, you don't have to watch it. And Colt was in her rights. I think to say like, I don't have to be here. Like if you don't want me here, I will leave. And you know, he was like, that's not the answer I wanted. And she's kind of like, I don't know what you want then. <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was a great interchange, and and I liked that. I felt I felt that uh, any of that wooden dialogue I was complaining about earlier went up in smoke. Just to interject that, I I really appreciate all those points, but if this wasn't a late '90s kind of low profile comic book, they would never have let a woman say that to a captain, <laughs> especially not in a '60s show. I don't I don't think they would have gotten away with uh, that kind of audacity for the lack of a better word, you know, and I'm glad human cold caught that, that moment to really state her opinion and who she is as a person and what she's really feeling instead of bowing down to something that is not really sitting right with her. But again, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys can correct me, but I don't know if they would have done that. Had this actually been a continuation of the cage as an episode, they would probably not have done that, especially not to the captain and let them say that out loud. Yeah. Maybe not mm -hmm. in this way, but they might have gone there lightly, but not as directly. Maybe. I, th I think as far as this story goes and this comic goes, it's almost something that they had to do. Uh, Cause I'm watching the cage, you know, Yeoman Colt is kind of wallpaper. She's kind of the aw shucks, golly gee, um, young woman. And I mean, you know, thankfully they don't reprise the line in this issue that Pike had where, you know, uh, you, number one says, oh, she's replacing your yeoman. It's like, she does a good job. All right. I just can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not obviously <laughs> the tone they're striking for this story. So I feel like they almost had to do this and have her uh, have agency and be able to speak up like that and that scene you know following the funeral where they talk i just like i've reread that a bunch of times and i remember that from reading this uh when i was younger i love that scene they feel so human there like you can put yourself in her place and 
I'm sad to say you can put yourself in Pike's place too. Like we've all had that where, you know, someone is inconvenient, right? Yeoman Colt is inconvenient right now. Um, it's a raw open wound and Pike wants to lash out and seize this opportunity to, you know, be mean to someone who is replacing his friend. And I've, I've been in that position when someone says something like that to me and I have to walk away in tears. And I've also been in the position where I've said something very inappropriate and mean. And then afterwards just been like, and in the comic here, he says blast because that comics code is its ugly head again. Yeah. But at the same time, that sounds like Pike. Yeah. Like I could see him saying that. Like it just, I've, I've been in that position both on both sides and it just felt so human. It felt so real. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just have to say that. I, I mean, I love this issue. I mean, again, I don't want everything about Pike to go back to the cage, but since we are going there, what I loved about this issue is it, it takes what the last three issues did and bring it to the cage as to why these characters are the way they are when we get to that episode, because it's like you guys are saying, I mean, this crew has been through a lot. I mean, they killed a space alien. They destroyed a planet. Then they get attacked and lose three crew members. And then this, woman shows up to join the crew and they're all depressed on the ship, you know, and Pike is angry and, and Pike, you know, isn't used to having a woman on the ship. Well, that sounds very sexist, but in a lot of ways now, when I see that, I'm going to think, well, it's because he's missing his former yeoman who was a guy. And I think it's more of him just being outraged that he lost someone and now he's got to be used to this other person. And he just says it in a bad way. I mean, it's still sexist, but, you know, yeah. it seems a little less that way to me. But, you know, Yeoman Colt just brings this outside perspective into the crew so we can look at them this way and know why they are the way they are and why Pike in the cage is like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm done. And I love how these issues just lead into this moment. And it really, really works for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder, and I mean, I wish I could have asked this when we were at ST, when I was at STLV, but I would be interested in finding out if Anson Mount himself uh, read any of these to, to kind of build the Pike character. I would, I would bet a handsome sum that his, that the writers of, uh, who, who wrote, who wrote specifically for Pike definitely would have had to have looked at some of this, you know, cause the sort obviously the Pike source material is somewhat lacking. Um, I think there's a few more novelizations that, that he does show up as well. But, um, I think about sort of how this was written in its, in its inter interwoven sort of style and everything. And I can't help but think about what Trek was, was airing at that time. And, you know, we had deep space nine and we had Voyager running as series at that, at that point in time. And in May of 1997, deep space nine had children of time, blaze of glory, um, and Empoch Nor came out, which I would argue very much children of time and Empoch Nor I quite enjoyed, um, thought were, were very strong episodes and Voyager at that point in time, uh, had uh, displaced worst case scenario and, uh, Scorpion part one, which come on, it's Scorpion. So, you know, we, we like to talk about this being a golden age of Trek, but you know, with comic books and two TV series that were, I would say in full fighting form, 
this would have been a pretty good time to be a Trek fan as well. Yeah, I'm sure if there were podcasts back at the time where people could just go and put stuff out there with their thoughts on the internet, there there would have been a bunch of just talking about how great that time was. Yeah. And I'm sure oh, there yeah. are message boards somewhere where they talk about stuff like this. But just before we uh, to continue talking about it, I do want to direct everyone's attention to the, the these are kind of throwaway pages, but there is a little sketchbook double spread mm. at the very yeah. end, oh, yeah. which uh, gives us a little bit of history on how much work Pat Zercher put in there. And the editor kind of writes, he, he, he says, Pat was not happy until he drew these things dozens of times and got them just perfectly. It goes to show you how committed, even, even at a time when they didn't have to worry about the wrath of the internet and people getting their opinions out in droves, when they kind of were doing these comics, not for a huge audience, but still a sizable audience that uh, seemed to enjoy them, it, it was very cool to see someone put that kind of effort in. So Pat Zorcher, if you're listening, he's still around. He uh, he still draws comics. So by, by some miracle, if this episode lands in his ears, just know that that hard work was well worth it. And we are still talking about his artwork today. Yeah, agreed on that totally. And I, I love the the evolution that we see and like you said the the work that went into this is definitely it, it shows on the page i think uh this could have been uh you know lower tier you know ah we'll just put something out there kind of thing but it's clear the people writing it the people drawing it they're all invested and committed to this and they're huge star trek fans and i mean uh, obviously the source material, there's not a lot, but what source material they do have, they obviously paid really close attention to. Uh, there's throwaway lines in previous issues that I didn't mention where, uh, Boyce says to Pike, you know, you should take some rest leave. Uh, I think that would be good for you. And there's one line in the cage where he says, are you finally going to take my advice? Like I've been telling you to take some rest leave, you know, just little stuff like that, that I'm like, they're paying attention and they're, they're throwing those things in there for the Uber Star Trek fans that will just get a little bit of a smile from that. And that, that just warms my heart. I love it. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, because we talked very little, Barry, like you said about number one, an, a, another moment in this issue that I just like reread and they sound so human and real is when yeoman cold is first coming aboard the ship and obviously you know everything's really raw after having just gone through this tragedy and the interplay interplay is probably the wrong word the back and forth between colt and number one as she's disembarking the shuttle and being shown to her quarters is incredible i love that dialogue they evolve quite a bit, and I think mm -hmm. I think by the end of it, you see uh, a camaraderie really form between the two of them, and it's something that you know I haven't read these comics, so now you guys have me four issues in. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I've I've got I've got to, I've got to read some more. And you know, Shashank was saying before we were recording about sort of the fate of this comic book series, but um, no, I think I think they they build some nice characters here. They really set a nice foundation, and you know, albeit, you know, the second issue notwithstanding, I think this is a, a good sort of start. And I mean, from the sounds of it, Kaj comes back and, and is a much more robust character with better motives and, and all these sorts of things. And, and I would assume Pike acts a lot more pikey the next time they uh, they meet with each other. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, w- I will say there's, I think, 17 or 18 issues. It's There's there's not a, not yeah, a lot 17. of issues. 17, okay. Um, and there's some good stuff to come. That's all I'll say. I don't want to, you know. But there, there's definitely some good stuff in there. I don't think I've actually read them all. I think I've missed a few here and there. So I'm definitely wanting to get back into this and read these uh, on on from here again now. Well, we can always do that some other time. There's another volume in Eagle Moss, issues 5 through 11 in volume 18. We'll see. Hmm. Might just have to. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, now would be a good time uh, to share any kind of final thoughts, uh, either about this issue or all four of these issues together. Uh, Shashank, why don't you lead us off on that? Sure. It was, it was fun. This was a good... Uh, trip to the Wayback Machine. I honestly, when I went into it, uh, when we talked about it, I had low expectations because I'm, I'm a bit of a comic junkie. And I the thing I remembered most about the series is that it ended on a cliffhanger because the sales were really low. And I thought, oh no, this is not going to be fun. So I don't know where <laughs> things went off the rails. But the first four issues, except for two, which is still forgivable and entertaining, for the most part, this is memorable. It expands on the pike lore. It expands on the cage. And it does a lot of things right. And that if there's anything that you can take away from this is even if you are not a particular fan of the story, even if you feel like there was too much dialogue and the sixties of it all doesn't appeal to you. Nobody can deny that the artwork by Pat Zercher is just captivating. And it's the one thing that will keep you going. It will keep you wanting to turn that page. And I will, I'll definitely go back and read the the remaining issues. I I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes, but for a nineties comic, that kind of went under the radar until I'm sure Eagle Moss bought it back and IDW published that omnibus, really bringing it back. For something that kind of went under the radar, this is this is memorable. And I, I'm glad I got to read it and discuss it with you guys. And if you were going to, um, I'm, I'm not sure what we could compare it to really, but if you were to give it maybe a rating of some kind, the, the collective first four issues, what would you say? Well, I would rate it out of four because there are four issues and I would give it a three uh, because uh, like the if if I could put all the is- the little issues I had with all four of them and the big issue I had with issue two and I could put it all together, I would give it a three out of four or probably what more most people would understand. I would probably give it close to a 3.5 out of five if if five was the rating, but it was fun. I'm definitely not sad I read it. I didn't regret it. It was not forgettable, which tends to be the crime of a lot of the 90s comics. It was it was fun and it was memorable, especially for Pat's artwork. Excellent. Uh, Barry, what are your thoughts and uh, and ratings? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I would I would say that for a story, for its uh, its attention to detail, especially, I would give it some very high marks. I really, really appreciate it. And this is just in the storytelling. The attention to detail was very good. Um, I find that when and maybe this was just a thing with the writers at the time when they were on they were on but when they were off they were off like it was it, it the there was some pieces of it that really did feel forced and and whatnot i i like to think of you know when i was that age in that time i was a, a sort of a teenager preteen 
12, between 12 and 15, I guess, sort of in my comic book age. And that would have been about 1994 to 1999 or so. And I got big into like X-Men, Age of Apocalypse. Um, you know, the death of Superman was a big thing kind of earlier on in that time. And then I, I swung over kind of more into the Alan Moore, uh, Frank Miller sort of stuff and kind of getting deeper into sort of the esoteric stuff of like Ghost World and, and whatnot. But um, I really find that this this if if not for these kinds of almost fan servicey comics that link back to some kind of nostalgic time we wouldn't have the same kind of of creatives that would would spawn out of this right like i think of of Joss Whedon for instance as a comic book writer i think he's he was very strong and I get a little bit of that. There's almost sort of like a Spielbergian cutesiness to to everything that kind of makes it a comfort to read as well. I, I, I mean, you've got Matt Jeffrey's design flying around the page. You've got uncanny-ish looking characters who who are extending a mythology that we as Trek fans have, and you get to see things from completely different perspectives. I mean it's fun. It's fun to read. It's fun to watch. So um, despite my criticisms, which are definitely constructive in that respect, I would probably, yeah, I'd give it a four out of five if we go with five. And I don't know what to do out of four because math is hard. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Bruce. Yeah, I really love these. I think the only one I ever read previous to this year was maybe issue one. I might have another issue or two laying around. I have to go look, but this is the first time I've read all four of these. And I really do love how they build on each other, build into the cage. They really are a prequel to the cage and it's going to change the way I watch that episode. Um, I love the art. We've talked about that quite a bit. Um, it was just, I, I just think I was surprised. I wasn't expecting that much. I mean, cause this year is the year of Pike and, you know, with Pike being on discovery and us reading Pike novels here on the show, it's just been a lot of stuff about Pike and his crew. And this just adds so much more to it. And I really enjoyed that. So, you know, even what the guys said, I agree with a lot that was mentioned. So I'll just go to my rating and say, I give this like little over, well, I give it four and a half really cool CD ROMs out of five. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I think this, uh, was three hits and one miss. Um, I, I really, I have a lot of fond memories of these comics and I'm really glad that they, for the most part, hold up. I was kind of worried. You know, you don't like to revisit some stuff from your youth because you know it's going to be uh, not as great as you remembered. And in some cases, I think I'm seeing a little bit more nuance and more depth in three out of four of these issues than I saw at the time as a kid. I'm, I'm getting more out of them this time around than I did back then. And now with this discussion with the political heavyweights of uh, Barry and Shashank, I'm getting even more out of them because, you know, you guys are making us up our game here uh, as far as uh, digging into these. So thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, Captain Pike as uh, Kennedy. That's that's great. I, I can't. I can't forget that. Well, we now. should we so, should just have you guys on the show to talk about how what political figures would best represent the captains. Ooh, that's a great topic. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Done. I, <laughs> and maybe right. villains too. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. 
it's a date. I'm there. Um, yeah, you no, guys awesome. are only allowed if you bring cool CD ROMs. Oh, of course, <laughs> as always. And Subway. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, but we've got. I've got to pull Bruce there on a skateboard or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> But yeah, no, I really enjoyed these. I think uh, my rating is going to align pretty close with your guys as well. Uh, I'm going to have to say four out of five um, weird scenes where the doctor is obviously battling with something that we don't uh, know what that is. We didn't talk about Mm. that, but yeah, that's not revealed (laughs) yet as to what's going on with the doc. No, and I think I I maybe I shouldn't give this away, but I think it's like issue like seven or eight. Like it's it's still a while before that gets paid off. So it's it's interesting. It's a thread that yeah, eventually does get paid off though. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh before we go, uh we do want to hear where, of course, people can find you guys online, where uh where we can stalk you basically and pick your brains about all this political stuff. Uh, Shashank, where can we uh, follow all the things that you do? When I'm not annoying Barry, but while talking life stuff or hosting other shows with him as, as part of this bigger friendship that we have in the Star Trek community, we both co-host a podcast called Polytrex in which we do our best to merge politics and Star Trek. I know not everyone's a fan of politics and doesn't want to talk about it, but we promise we do our best to find hopeful, positive things. And that's why the Star Trek of it all is part of it. So it's it's uh, us merging the real world events, figures, uh, things from history, things from the present, what might happen in the future with the world of Star Trek's episodes and characters. And it is our... Uh, it is our hope that we bring out some fun in that. So we co-host a show called Polytrex together on the Trek Geeks Network. Best way to find us is P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S on Twitter. That's our Twitter handle. That's where we are most active as a show. And me personally, you can find me also. I just do Twitter. That's my only social media. You can find me on gutter underscore hero. That's G-U-T-T-E-R underscore H-E-R-O. Yeah, and you can find me at uh, B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D, Bjorn de Fjord, uh, on Twitter. And yeah, like with me, you're going to get a smattering of basically if it has something to do with uh, Star Trek or left-wing politics, then uh, I'm your I'm your site to go to. I'm your, I'm your Twitter page to go to. If not, then you'll probably end up hate-reading stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah, like, like Shashank said, our, our Facebook presence is pretty limited at this point. Um, we've sort of moved as members of the Trek Geeks network. If you wanted to get in touch with us, uh, my number one thing I would say is to just jump on uh, the Trek Geeks, uh, like the network's actual Facebook conversation page, which is called Camp Kittimer. Um, I'm on there quite often. So you'll, if you want to ask any politics-centric questions, you can always do that. But uh, I think our DMs are open, so you can always check us out on Twitter as well that way. And if not, there's ways to call in, um, ask us questions, heckle, all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, that's, that's where you can find us. Excellent. Well, like I said, thank you guys so much for coming on. I'm glad we were finally able to do this. And uh, that was a great discussion. So I I had a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same. That was an immense pleasure. Thanks for having us. Well, you know, having those guys on felt like I was in the world of Polytrex, but it wasn't all about Poly. It was just about Trex. Yeah, I... I I said during the interview that like I had to up my game when those guys came on. 
and yeah, they came to talk. I, I was, uh, I was really impressed with that discussion and I meant that, like, I felt like I had to rise to their level with, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge they brought was, uh, I, I really liked having them on. I think we'll definitely have to do that again. And you need to tell the story real quick. When we were at STLV last year, we met these guys in person. I don't mm-hmm. even know if Polytrex had even launched yet or it just launched or something. I think it was fairly new or, yeah. but anyway, we were at the tricorders transmission party and what happened? Well, yeah. So we're, we're there and, uh, you know, Barry and Shashank, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of one those people that have a crowd of people around them, right? They're working the crowd a little bit. And I hear Barry say something along the lines of, well, I'm from some, you know, small place in Canada. You've probably never heard of it. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm there from Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada with a couple of my friends. And uh, I had to ask him like, oh, where where are you from? And he's like, oh, I'm from Alberta. And I was like, well, where in Alberta? And he says, well, city called Grand Prairie. And I was just floored, like. I make the joke that, that like whoever's running the matrix saw that moment and went, Oh no, 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 no. That wasn't supposed to happen. Crap. I'm going to be so <laughs> fired. Uh, I was supposed to keep that though, them apart. Like we go, we travel, you know, thousands of kilometers separately to Vegas to meet there and find out that like he lives a couple miles down the road from me. Like yeah. it's so crazy. So crazy. And the fact that he was saying that, like, oh, you know, some small town can't, like, no one's ever, I remember hearing him saying something like, you know, uh, no one knows it or knows where I'm from, whatever. And you're like, <laughs> basically like, wait, what, where I'm from there. <laughs> oh, it's so crazy. Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking about Grand Prairie today, but that's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Is this the supernatural Klingon episode? What is this going to be? And then it just turns out to go in, you know, go in and you know, dig your own time crystals, State Park. I mean, <laughs> it's like, okay. I Well, Larry, again, you know, he, you, he you, you go it. in there and you there's a like a, a basket type thing there and you, you put in your 10 quat lose and you mm-hmm. get 60 minutes to dig your time crystal dar six dar six yeah yeah actually the klingons want dar six don't yeah, they yeah yeah and you go in and actually however many time crystals you can dig in 60 minutes you get to keep but the catch is they're time crystals so 60 minutes to one person <laughs> is only a minute to someone else that- literary treks uh, we have the conversation between Pike and the uh, the Star, Starfleet Admiral Terrell uh, about the specifics of why they were kept out of the war. This is even before we're in a situation where they have no choice but to stay out of the war. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. By you know, sort of setting up the the, the milestones in the story for this is about when this is happening during season one. Uh, you know that allows us to tell our own independent story within that but yet also you'll always know where you are in the regular tv show earl gray that question about whether life exists either yes it does because like enough time has elapsed and there's enough planets out there or no it doesn't because we are that race oh 
<laughs> that seeds yeah. life elsewhere in the universe. At the some the point other in the answer future. is it did, but they all destroyed themselves. You know, but that's that's also kind of unlikely that you'd have lots of civilizations all doing the same thing and destroying themselves. I think, but to the journey. <laughs> In the That's all I could think about with that this one. Is, this is the Seinfeld in Space episode. I keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do Can you do, Can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief, no. Not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. <laughs> He's got that super high-pitched da-da-da-da-da kind of, I don't know, kind yeah. of voice. Well, that you did really well, the da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah, there you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, good for you, because if you go in there and you hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published, you're good to go. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab that rss link and if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week you can become a patron of the network on patreon just visit patreon.com slash trek fm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trek fm to get all of the details Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website patron zone It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And you know what? If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that by going to trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And maybe we'll read it on the show, with your permission, of course. And you can find the network on Twitter, at trek.fm, and on Facebook, at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. That's Plus right, because I update that thing. Oh, I and thank you for that, Bruce. <laughs> I'm really bad at that. <laughs> but there are also great conversations happening about the books and comics that I don't take enough of a part in as well. Just go to goodreads.com and search for literary treks. Click join group and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for literary treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not coming across a cache of dilithium crystals and blowing it up because, damn it, if you can't have it, no one can have it. Where can we find you? (laughs) It will burn forever. And then you can find me leaving that burning site on the Enterprise 
and I'll be on Facebook and I'll be on Twitter. And on Twitter, you can find me at Admiral underscore Rex. And on Facebook, you can find me in the Babel Conference. And of course, you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, when Discovery new episodes come out, we have Live from the Edge. So check that out with Brandy Jacola. And Dan, when you're not drawing pictures of characters that don't look quite like the actors, but close enough where people can figure out that it is the character, where can people find you? It's a, it's a tough uh, line to walk. I mean, Jeffrey Hunter is really hard to capture, I gotta say. But uh, yeah, when I'm not uh, managing to mess that up just enough... You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. I've got a YouTube channel there where I talk mostly about Star Trek. Uh, you can also find my book review website at www.treklit.com where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference as well. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>